0: are listening to the Unsung Lung Podcast, presented by Alberta Lung. happy quarter century. Okay, I know that's a little obscure, but we've hit 25 episodes now on the Unsung Lung Podcast, and I am so grateful for everyone who has been along for the ride, helping us to spread awareness about lung health. Our show today is going to be an absolutely amazing one, as we'll be speaking to an individual about indoor air quality and radon. Our guest has a PhD, and he's a lawyer as well, so you know he really knows his stuff. Before diving into the episode, I just wanted to let you know about an amazing program offered by Alberta Lung. As Alberta's provincial lung health charity, we believe that community and talking about your lung disease or loved one's lung diseases with others can be very helpful to the health of you and your family. We offer and admin a number of different support groups that provide education, exercise plans, and communal support from those in our community that live with the same lung disease as you might have. Our main support group is our Better Breather's Club, and we offer weekly virtual seminars, activities, and discussions on a variety of topics relating to lung health, including breath checks, mental health check-ins, tips for using inhaled medications, and even advice on CPAP maintenance and fittings. We also have a pulmonary fibrosis support group and a lung cancer support group. In these groups, you can speak directly to others in Alberta who have pulmonary fibrosis and lung cancer to learn about what to expect in your disease progression, helpful tips to make you feel more comfortable, and just camaraderie with people who are going through the exact same thing as you. All of these support groups are found on Facebook, so simply look up Alberta Lung Better Breather's Club the next time you're on Facebook and join the group. Okay, perfect. So now on to today's show. Our guest on the 25th episode of the Unsung Lung Podcast is Dr. Noah Quastel. Dr. Quastel is is a practicing lawyer in the province of British Columbia. Actually, I should say he isn't practicing anymore. He's working uh, specifically with the BC Lung Foundation. So uh, he also has his PhD in human geography. His research focuses on sustainability, the built environment and radon exposure law and policy. He is also the director of law and policy for the BC Lung Foundation's Healthy Indoor Environments Program. We'll get into that a bit more Uh, of what it is and the, the intricate parts of it in the show today. So we'll also be discussing issues related to indoor air quality and how advocating for change can really make a difference. Noah played a key role in the recent changes to the BC Building Code regarding radon mitigation in construction, and we'll talk to him about what those changes are. I'm so excited to get into this conversation today, as health policy is really something I can see myself doing in my career as a lawyer. So I can't wait to pick Noah's brain about everything he does in BC on a daily basis. So that's enough of me. Let's send you through to my interview with lawyer, PhD, and lung health advocate Dr. Noah Quast. Well, I am so excited to get into this interview today as I haven't had the pleasure to interview a lawyer or a PhD yet on our show. So as a law student myself that just passed the halfway mark in my law school career, this is really special. So welcome to Dr. Noah Quastel. Uh, how are you doing today? Hi. Good. Morning. Perfect. How's the weather on the on the West Coast? Is it is it nice?
1: Yeah, it's getting warmer and the days are longer so we're starting to see crocuses and snowdrops
0: perfect amazing that's all you can ask for I, my my brother was complaining the other day that it's starting to feel like Vancouver here from how dreary it is and I'm like just it's we're, we're getting to March it'll be okay it'll be okay soon so anyways um l- let's dive right into it I'd love to get to know about you and your career and your background as as I mentioned to Noah before we started taping. I thought he was a physician a couple of weeks ago when I got the notes about our show because I typically only interview physicians, but I quickly realized that he's a PhD as well as a lawyer. So that's really amazing. Um, but I'd love to get to know about a, a bit about your background and education, why you decided to get a PhD in human geography and just everything about you. You have a really interesting background. So if you could tell our, our listeners where where you, where it all started
1: well i i worked as a lawyer um and was a bit dissatisfied because i was interested in uh system change and public interest and at that time uh there was not a lot of um job opportunities and i was also interested in academic issues of just thinking reflectively about what environmental law is and sustainability and how it fits into system change. So I did quite a bit of graduate work. And uh, for various reasons, the work that I like to do, I started actually with a master's in law and then switched to a PhD in human geography just because of the methods and uh, focus on empirical research uh, that was available in geography. And I, I like the program I've published in it. Uh, But uh, the sort of focus on sustainability in the built environment lent itself well to issues of buildings. And I was approached by radon activists who wanted me to do radon work uh, while I was a postdoc. uh, And that seemed appealing to me. So here I am at uh, the BC Lung Foundation running projects on system change around indoor environments, uh, which... Does fit in oddly into what my my research was when I was younger.
0: Amazing. Uh, I'd I love to keep digging into your background a bit. Um, just from my perspective, a little selfish perspective as as our listeners know I'm currently a law student where where did you get your juris Doctor degree?
1: Uh, I actually have an LLB from oh. what previously was known as the UBC uh, law school. <laughs> it has now changed its name. Um, and I did a master's at the University of Victoria Law School.
0: Awesome. Super interesting. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, so y- you mentioned you work with the BC Lung Foundation now, and that, that's your primary practice. That's what you do. Um, I'm wondering what you do with the BC Lung Foundation. I introduced your uh, your title in the introduction earlier. Um, but w- what, what does your work entail mostly?
1: So... The Healthy Indoor Environments program uh, I helped put together uh, and it has a broad mandate to advance education awareness and any needed system change to improve indoor environmental quality. Uh, for the last five years, we focused primarily on radon uh, as part of a focus suite of projects. We are interested in the whole range of indoor environmental quality issues. Uh, the that, that suite of projects really was to move BC from a place where people did not know about radon and there was no real government policy, except for, you know, a few small exceptions. There there was stuff in the building code, but most people even now remain unprotected from radon and don't know about it. So we examined uh, how current law was working. We looked at where people had duties to protect health and the environment where they did not realize that involved radon. Uh, we looked at possibilities for change in occupational health and safety, in renters' protection, and uh, you know we have a variety of reports. And I did legal reports. We also examined existing legal structures, such as the BC Building Code, to see if it was working well. Uh, we found significant flaws. Uh, and finally, we promulgated a action plan for BC to have a radon plan analogous to national plans in the European Union, which are mandated by the European Union. So, so we we actually have now a fairly robust plan for how to make system change in BC with a very good evidence base. And we're proud to see that changes are happening. Uh, there has been quite a lot of reception Uh, This is a very unique kind of environmental issue because people don't know about it and the solutions are quite easy to accomplish. So so we're proud of the ability to have really concrete effect within a few years of our program.
0: Right. Yeah, that's amazing. Speaking of people don't really know about radon, I can certainly attest to that in Alberta. Whenever I speak to anyone about what I do on this podcast or just my previous work with Alberta Lung, no one really knows what radon is. The odd person does because their friend told them to get their house tested or something like that, but it's just not well known about enough yet. Um, I, I uh, th- Thank you for telling us about your work with uh, the BC Lung Foundation. I want to take a step back. I had this question in my head. I don't know why I skipped past and went around to the second one. I'm very curious about your your PhD in human geography. I'm, I'm wondering if you can tell us like, what that is specifically, maybe how it differs from something like anthropology. Um, what What is human geography at, at its base?
1: Well, this is what geographers like to say, is that historians study human societies in time and geographers human geographers study human societies in space. Uh, so g- broadly, you have a set of questions in terms of how we occupy space and what spaces are. Uh, Now, the notion of space that geography uses isn't simply a physical space, but it's a kind of context, which involves a relationship between nature, built environment, and human systems. Uh, And that kind of perspective lends itself really well to examining, say, the structure of cities, uh, how property is used, uh, trade relations between places, uh, flows of commodities. And I was particularly interested in how concepts of sustainability are transforming how we govern particular systems and in particular commodity systems. So I spent some time looking at mining and a little bit looking at coffee, a little bit electricity and quite a bit on buildings and, and, and cities and how sustainability as a model of governance was transforming cities. And that um, has allowed me to to go into some depth into how we regulate and govern uh, the places we live.
0: That's really incredible. That, that, that's awesome to know. Thank, thank you for that background. Uh, so moving more into what you practice today and as a very general start to the topic of indoor air quality and radon, uh, we've spoken about radon quite a few times on this show. Actually, maybe only once. I can't remember. But um, I'm wondering if you can explain to our listeners what radon is generally so we can get kind of a freshen up on that.
1: Uh, yeah, sure. Radon's a naturally occurring odorless and colorless gas uh, that comes from the ground. Uh, it is caused by the radioactive decay of uranium. It easily mixes with air. It can enter buildings and accumulate over time. Uh, Radon is itself an unstable radioactive material. So it is constantly releasing high energy particles, alpha particles. Your skin protects you from alpha particles, but you can breathe in radon mixed with air and your lungs are susceptible to bombardment by alpha particles. Those alpha particles um, can, you know, cut right through uh, to the subatomic level, well, to the atomic level, break apart DNA bonds, create lung cancer. Uh, So over 3,000 Canadians a year die from radon-induced lung cancer. Now, the good news is that radon is easy to test and relatively easy to fix. So low-cost single-use monitors cost $30 to $60 and will tell you radon levels in an inside space. In some parts of British Columbia, over half of homes test with radon over Health Canada's guideline, which is 200 becquerels per meter cubed. If a home tests near or above the guideline, a professional mitigator can be called who puts in a special venting system from under the slab, the concrete foundation, the building rests on. So, so we have a problem. So we have a significant health problem, which people don't know about, but if they did think it through and were aware, they could test their homes and their workplaces and impose solutions. Um, and this is something that we could easily have rules about uh, for renters, for workplaces, uh, for uh, real estate transactions, um, and and other areas, and of course policies to help low income individuals uh, mitigate their own homes or landlords to 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 work for renters. So it's a problem, but there is good solutions available.
0: Definitely, yeah. Uh- I, I I want to say the main reason why it's just not known about is because it doesn't feel like it's an immediate threat, right? You you move into a house and radon levels build up. Well, radon levels are already there, but it, it's not something in your face like someone smoking. And you know that lung cancer is probably developing that person's lungs rather quickly, whereas radon develops over time and it's just not in your face. And it's it's an invisible odorless gas. And like you mentioned, it's the number one cause of cancer in non-smoking Canadians. So it's a huge problem, um, but it's just not really respected. So that's what people like you and I are trying to get out there. So uh, again, in diving into your research on built environments, I'm wondering how high, or not high, sorry, how energy efficiency upgrades in homes affect radon levels?
1: Our program conducted a literature review on radon and energy efficiency, uh, and the research is very clear. In the absence of testing and mitigation for radon, newer, more energy efficient homes have higher radon than older homes. And tests of older homes before and after retrofits show clear increases in radon levels. So we can, Identify two main ways that retrofits can make radon worse. And and similar principles will apply to newer homes. So a very good way to lower energy costs in a building is to reduce the amount of air that needs to be conditioned, heated in winter or cooled in summer. So to do that, improvements are made in the building envelope. That is the new doors and windows and ceiling of gaps and walls that we commonly hear about. And the idea there is to decrease natural ventilation so that we're not heating and cooling air unnecessarily. Unfortunately, in many homes without radon mitigation systems, it's just that unplanned natural ventilation which works to flush radon out. So by stopping the circulation of air, you just let radon levels go up. Now, a tighter envelope can also change the air pressure in a home. So if your home is very tight and you put on a strong kitchen fan, you can create a lot of negative pressure or suck in the home. But that sucking can actually suck in radon from outside. Uh, So again, there are very easy solutions. For individuals, test for radon after a retrofit and call in mitigators if radon levels are high. We also stress the value of mechanical ventilation systems, which balance air pressure. These are great tools for energy savings and for other indoor air quality issues as well. Mechanical ventilation can use what are called heat recovery systems or HRVs. And you'll sometimes also see uh, energy recovery ventilators as an alternate name. Uh, These save energy by capturing air on the way out. Capturing heat from air on the way out, uh, but also guaranteeing airflow at all times, not just dependent on occupants, remembering to put them on. Air filters can also be put on MERV 13 for the technically minded that can clean air from the outside when it's dirty, such as during wildfire events. At a system level, we want to make sure energy advisors and contractors and government energy renovation grants take ownership of this issue. Making sure homeowners, landlords, and employers know about the problem, and grants cover radon testing and mitigation. We always want to say that concerns about radon should never dissuade people from doing the important work of reducing energy use and greenhouse gas emissions from our buildings. Our key message is that there needs to be testing for radon and after a retrofit, and of course, good radon mitigation systems built into new energy efficient buildings.
0: Definitely. Yeah, that that's super interesting. I never I never even thought about the gaps in your window as being able to release radon, but that's that's really interesting to think about. Something I'm thinking on the off the top of my head, and I'm not asking for a scientific or empirical um analysis of this, maybe just just what you think on if if it's a possibility. I'm thinking as as we move further into the 21st century and everyone's trying to pinch a penny including when you're building homes, do you think there's any merit to the thought that as as home builders and uh, and people that build buildings want to save money, do you, do you think there's any way that people are building the slabs, the foundations of homes thinner, leading to more cracks and then radon gets in easier? I, again, I'm not asking for scientific, I, I don't want you to find a paper on this Do you think it's a possibility or I'm just, I'm just curious what your thoughts are on that?
1: Well, let's distinguish a whole bunch of different things. Our research on the BC building codes implementation showed a lot of flaws in how mitigation systems were built. There is a constant tendency of contractors to want to reduce costs and many building officials don't know very much about the issue and aren't good at looking so we saw a lot of flaws i suppose the purpose of building codes is to protect the public from dodgy cost cutting practices by builders Uh, so that's always going to be an issue so so really the question is having a good building code which properly specifies what we need and having an enforcement system generally at the municipal level for protecting us from shoddy developers. Uh, one of the main problems that we did find did relate to the slab. And that has to do with concrete shrinkage is that people pour a slab. Uh, they try and make the, the envelope type to the slab. And then over time, the concrete simply shrinks. And, um, the way of dealing with that there's a couple of ways of dealing with it one is you can you can put in tapes and 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 covers to sort of accommodate um, flexible joints to accommodate for concrete uh, shrinkage but most importantly you need to test your home after you move in and so we stress testing after well we stress a whole bunch of things we just we stress that the realtor should tell people when they're buying and selling homes that they, that they need to be concerned about radon. Um, that should really apply also to building uh, managers and rentals. Uh, so renters should know that there's these risks um, and that there be at legal avenues when people don't tell you uh, about these risks uh, that you test after occupancy and Generally, the rule is to the, the, the that health kind of says is to test once you move in. We're hearing because of the concrete shrinkage that you might want to wait a year. So perhaps what you could do is test initially and then retest a year or two later to deal with that concrete shrinkage issue. Um, and then you you can fix it. Uh, you know, you can put in new joints, you can you can seal it up. Mitigators can can work with fans and add fans to make sure these systems work properly.
0: Amazing. Yeah, that's really good advice. I I know for people that if they don't want to test once and test again, if that seems like a whole issue, um, you can buy constant, like continuous monitoring radon devices. I think they're, they're obviously a little bit more expensive than the smaller kits that you send off to a lab. For testing but that's one way to do it if you want to test as soon as you move in and then test uh, like you mentioned Noah after a year that's always a possibility so uh, you've mentioned the bc building codes a bunch we'll get into those in a second but just moving away from radon for one question i'm wondering if the upgrades we talked about the energy efficiency upgrades do these affect other indoor air quality factors like cooking fumes from the stove for example
1: Yes, absolutely. And for the same reasons. So you, you, we have a lot of pollutants that originate inside the home. So indoor air quality is often worse than outside, uh, except for one you know, key occasion if you live in a really polluted area or wildfire smoke. But for most Canadians, the indoor air is going to be worse than outside. And that's going to be caused by it could be cooking fumes, like a burning toast. It could be uh, nitrogen dioxide that comes off of a gas stove as you cook. Uh, There are lots of formaldehydes in consumer products, mattresses around us. Uh, People often also have um, solvents and glues that they're using inside the house. So a variety of factors add up. we don't normally think of viruses as a pollutant, but that's a major concern as well, you know, from, from COVID-19, but not just that it actually goes way back and you go to the 19th century and people were concerned about tuberculosis in, in inside buildings and just a lack of air flow will create a lot of problems with illness. Um, so those are all reasons to make sure you have decent ventilation. Um, so, yeah, just just ventilation is 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 a major concern with with um, energy efficiency upgrades or in new homes. And again, you can build the systems in. So it's a really it's 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 a knowledge issue and it's a regulation issue.
0: Definitely, yeah. We we think you can get all the fresh air in that you want from the outside, but if nothing's going out you're not you're not supplying you could be bringing in fresh air but you're not getting rid of the radon in your house you're not getting rid of even su- some things as small as candles we talk about at alberta lung that's that's a pollutant it's it, it they're usually made from different oils and petroleum products so ventilation is obviously key um opening windows in the summer when you can obviously that's not possible in a lot of places in canada um but just thinking about that whenever you can. So. Going back to radon and radon radon mitigation, uh, I'm wondering if you can give us a quick overview of the radon mitigation changes to the BC building code uh, that you advocated for and why they are so important.
1: So BC made some changes to the building code for 2024, and it will start to be in effect in March. Um, There were two significant changes. The first big change is how the radon system is built from the get-go. Um, And we're going to see similar changes in the National Building Code soon. Uh, The BC regulators participate in the Canadian Board for Harmonized Construction Codes, uh, which forms the National Building Code. And they were trying to get a quick start in BC on on those changes. Um, And the the heart of those changes is making sure that there's a well-built passive sub-slab mitigation system from the get-go. And that involves having a, a well-sealed foundation, a vent pipe that goes from under the foundation up and out the building. And if that is built right, there'll be a natural process where radon will move from under the slab through the building and out. Um if it is built right. So so we had seen all sorts of flaws in in how that system was delineated in passcodes and in how developers were building it. Uh, And it wasn't just us. There was actually a lot of discussion nationally about it. And organizations like the Canadian Standards Board had promulgated new rules for how to build radon and new construction. And so the attempt of the BC regulators was to bring that on board so that those systems could work well. Now, if you have a passive system like that and it's working well, it will reduce radon in any building, regardless of whether occupants test or add a fan, and it will reduce radon even in buildings that are under Canada's guideline of 200 becquerels per meter cubed. So there's actually a huge part of the population which might live in 150 becquerels or 100 becquerels or even 50 becquerels for which an incremental improvement in radon will statistically save lives. Uh, and so so that is a real push. And and there's been, well, Health Canada produced actually quite a lot of studies for the National Building Code changes. Um, it's a bit of digging to find that regulatory paperwork, but that argument is being made at the national level. So BC is adopting that. Now, BC had really high radon levels. It's been well known for a long time that there's high radon in the interior of BC and not as much on the coast. Older testing initiatives missed out what was happening on the coast where most of the population lives. So older versions of the BC code specified a limited number of locations where radon systems had to be built at the time of construction. Um, In the last few years, though, there's been a lot of testing through the province. Uh, BC lung initiatives, take action on radon initiatives, also the BC Center for Disease Control created the Radon Data Repository and then a BC Radon map. uh, And that involved sourcing different databases of radon and putting them together and mapping them. So now we have a map which shows that there's quite a lot of radon in the coast. So 2% of homes in Victoria are above 200 becquerels per meter cubed. Uh, And so this shows radon can be an issue anywhere in the province. So that protective mechanism is important, you know, for the 2% of people in Victoria that might have radon without a mitigation system, without anything built in construction, but also just to lower average radon levels everywhere. Uh, So that should be an effective public health response throughout the province. So now every uh, part nine building in B.C., uh, which is a low to mid-rise construction, I think it's up to four stories, uh, single family homes and townhouses should have radon mitigation systems. Uh, For more complex buildings, we rely on what's called engineering best practice. And that goes to the knowledge base of architectures and engineers. And their role is to use engineering practices to get right on a low is reasonably achievable.
0: Awesome. That was going to be my question. What what that building code specifically refers to what sides of building, but you answered it there. Uh, in, in terms of individual homes uh, people listening to this and anyone that is thinking of testing and if your house is unfortunately high mitigating we want to put a psa out there that it isn't a really in-depth process to get mitigation done i had well i was going to say the fortunate but i guess the unfortunate experience of going through a mitigation process in my own house we tested we tested our house and it was it wasn't at the 200 becquerels per meter cubed but it was pretty close it was 150 175 and my family wasn't comfortable with that so we got a mitigation done uh it costs only about as much as I mean obviously it's going to change throughout the country and different provinces but to replace a small appliance not like a microwave but like a dishwasher or something like that um yeah and it, it was a super simple process uh the the team came out uh checked you can obviously check online for uh local radon mitigators in your area but they came out they did it really fast they looked they made sure which part of the house would be best to put the mitigation system in and it sounds super invasive like you're 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 drilling a big hole in your foundation but it really it's not it takes up very little space uh, the ours has a fan in it it isn't passive um but the, you can't hear the fan at all it costs virtually nothing to run and you're just completely reducing the the chance of anyone in your family getting lung cancer from radon um so uh it, it was an awesome it was an awesome process I'm sitting two floors above it right now and my own room, so um, it, it it was amazing to get done. And uh, if if anyone wants to see kind of um, radon mitigation process in while it's being done, you can go to www.ablung.ca forward slash radon and watch the video. We made a little commercial on it. It it, it was really fun to do. Um, so so thank you for telling us about the BC building code and and your advocacy in that. So I want to actually ask you about advocacy specifically. So why is advocacy in health policy so important? And specifically, do you think that it's worthwhile to reach out to your local politicians and speak up about causes that are important to you? And obviously, for you and I, Noah, those causes often have to do with uh, lung health reasons. So what's your take on advocacy?
1: Okay, so let's, let's go back to sort of the basics of system change. Broadly, our society has established systems and practices in place, ways of doing things, which can extend to how we build buildings or design cities. And one of the key ingredients in that is the legal system, which prescribes, you know, ways for people to operate, the, the sort of how you shall do things, as well as the tax and spend powers of governments. And that's, you know, generally the policy side. Um, And from time to time, our knowledge base changes. We learn something new or we adopt new values. And the result is a need to change our systems and practices. And health is definitely an area where there's a huge societal focus on research and continuous learning. And society values are changing around health. It's fair to say we have become a more health focused society over time and are more concerned about having healthy environments. And the federal government has recently enshrined in legislation the right to a healthy environment. So when we focus on how to achieve healthy indoor environments, we can find a lot of gaps. To date, our building practices have not been well organized around ensuring healthy live and workspaces. Uh, So many buildings have high radon. But we also see problems with lack of ways to protect people from wildfire smoke outside, poor ventilation, um, and other issues. So we spend 90% of our time indoors, and indoor air is often worse than outdoor air. So from a health policy and lung advocacy perspective, there's a lot of work to be done to change building codes Building operations and maintenance, retrofits, and of course, to enshrine protective principles in law and regulation like occupational health and safety and renters protection. In our system, legislatures have the keys to making those changes. And so it is about going through elected officials, or in fact, a lot of our work at BC Long is it doesn't go right to ministers, but to subsidiary staff and looks to regulatory change. We can also look to organizations like um, the BC Real Estate Association uh, uh, controls the property disclosure statement. And we're able to convince them to change the property disclosure statement. So so there's various levers that that I spend my time as as a legal professional trying to figure out how they work uh, to make those changes. But generally it's the people in cabinet at the provincial level, who have the most control over changing these systems.
0: Yeah, that's that's amazing to hear. I know health policy is certainly something that I would like to pursue in my career. I'm in between health policy and criminal law. It's tugging at me both sides. So we'll see. But um that that's amazing to know. I know that Lung Sask uh to the east of us has uh they they petition their parliament, parliament, their provincial government all the time um specifically in terms of vaping they're they're, they do very excellent work with uh, trying to reduce vaping in youth so advocacy from from a lung health charity perspective you and i and everyone across canada is super important um so thank you for that uh we'll, we'll take a step back now and go super macro lens um and through a definitely scientific lens i'm wondering if climate change affects radon levels what's your take on that
1: A little bit. Um, Research from Alaska is suggesting that radon in soil can be released when permafrost melts. So we have a clear link there. Um, If people are spending more time indoors because perhaps it's very hot out or there is a winter Arctic outflow event, and then they're also resorting to a well-sealed indoor space, there's a risk that the space might have high radon. Uh, and there's also the potential scenario, which, you know, we we, we talked about energy efficiency and radon, but we can imagine a kind of climate future in which we're putting a lot of effort into uh, responding to climate change through making buildings more energy efficient, but ignoring radon. And and so we definitely want to work to avoid that scenario. Uh, so we're very conscious of the links between climate change and health in general. And, uh, want to work quite strongly towards reducing uh, and eliminating anthropogenic climate change um uh, but the links to radon are are loose and and not as strong as in other areas
0: fair enough that and that, that was a good point connecting it back to the energy efficiency um standards that we'd like to hit just thinking as temperatures get on the more extreme ends we get colder in canada in the winters and hotter in the summers we're going to want to stay inside more using that ac using that heat that we're accustomed to and as buildings get more energy efficient and airtight radon just keeps building up more and more so that's that's actually a very good point on how radon can be affected in that way from climate change um so Perfect, yeah, that, that, that's an awesome overview. Um, and then I also have another kind of scientific health policy question about uh, radon levels. So why why does Canada have a different safe radon limit than the World Health Organization? And from my quick research, I'm not sure if this is correct, but obviously Canada's is 200 becquerels per cubic meter and the WHO's is 100 to 300. Not sure you can correct me on that, but what why is there a difference?
1: So when you look back at how radon levels have been set by different countries, you you find the key guidance from the International Commission on Radiological Protection, uh, the ICRP, and and they are really who the WHO follows, the European Union and and most countries. Uh, so their recommendations, um, and you can you can see this on there, there's actually a, a ICRP wiki site. Uh, that tries to make this this available, but it's interesting for radiological protection. We actually have a globally quite centralized system of of dissemination of knowledge and guidance. So, so what the ICRP says is, um, they recommend action levels in hundred to three hundred becquerels per meter cubed in that range, and that has to do with a mixture of uncertainty in in the science as well as giving countries some leeway to deal with local conditions. So most countries actually chose 200 to 300 becquerels. And the World Health Organization took the most protective in that range and went for 100. Um, Now, what happened in in Canada in the mid-2000s is the provinces and territories and federal government hashed out a pragmatic compromise at 200. And one of the main reasons was because of the amount of radon in the country and the amount of buildings, trying to get below 200 was looking unachievable. So it was really a pragmatic and economic uh, decision. Now, for most homes, as I described, passive radon systems can work really well. Now, if you're wise and you build a good passive system in conjunction with a heat recovery ventilation system, uh, research is showing is that's a very good system for getting low radon in buildings. Um, and then if people test and add a fan that have an active system, it's very easy to get the buildings below 100 becquerels per meter cubed. So I think it's realistic for Canada to move towards 100 becquerel per meter cubed guideline. I think as more people know about radon and these practices, the building practices are better known, we're going to see a lot more results below 100 coming out. Uh, the research is always showing that uh, uh, the Canadian Association of on Scientists and Technologists does study uh, the results of mitigators, and they almost always are below 100. So I think we'll get there. And I think over time, if there's public pressure, the, the Canadian standards can be lowered. For now, uh, our emphasis has been on getting people to take radon seriously, test and mitigate and get law and policy in place. Uh, Maybe not uh, worrying too much about the 200 because just that initial move is gonna save a huge amount of lives right now. We also wanna add that 200 becquerels per meter cubed is an action level. It is not a, a lower limit. The written guidance doesn't say Oh, if you're at 199, everything's cool. What it says is, is when you test your home, if you're at 200, put in protective controls. And this is true for workplaces as well. Put in protective controls and mitigate to as low as reasonably achievable, ALARA. So that ALARA principle moves through all of the radiation protection guidance. And what we're seeing is that Alara realistically is well under 100 becquerels per meter cubed in almost all buildings we've encountered.
0: Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. It, it, in terms of checking your levels, it's so funny. My dad does super annoying thing. We have a continuous radon checker in our basement. And every few months, he'll go down and look at it and say, oh, yeah, we're at nine, still looking good. And it's just super funny. It's the most dad thing ever. But it, it, it's a it's a testament to what, what a mitigation system can do. When we were consistently at plus 150, plus 175, um, and it's still kicking. So, um, yeah, it, it, it's super important. It's interesting to know where we got to that number of 200 and hopefully where we can get in the future and getting that number down and down and down and down more as We continue to advocate and educate people on the dangers of radon. So thank you for that uh, amazing background. And as a final question today, I'm wondering what can our listeners do? This is sort of a practical question. What what can they do to protect their homes from radon while they arrange for mitigation? If, for example, they tested their homes and the tests came back with a high number, what are the things they can do in the meantime?
1: I tend to stress that it depends a little bit on what your radon levels are. So, Health Canada advises that if levels are between 200 and 600 becquerels per meter cubed, one should mitigate within two years. So, if your home is at 300 becquerels per meter cubed and you're waiting two months for a mitigator, I don't think one particularly needs to sweat it. Um, just being over to you know, don't be alarmed. This is sort of what we always want to say like, yes, there's radiation in your home. And you should worry about that a lot more than, say, drift from Fukushima. But, <laughs> um, you know, move to get it done. Now, if, you know, if you're at two, 3000, yeah, move quickly to, to, to get this done. But most people are going to be in the two to 400 range. Uh, statistically, we, we, we know that. Um, so let's say you do want to reduce the radon levels for whatever reason. Um, the simple answer is to create ventilation. And you can do if you have a mechanical ventilation system, it's possible that you haven't familiarized yourself with the control settings. So go into the box and look at the dials and look up the guidance manual and figure out how to readjust it and maybe crank it up a little bit. Uh, You can also just open windows and doors for an alternative natural ventilation route. Uh, um, Be careful with putting on large kitchen or bathroom fans. Uh, and you can buy, as you described, a continuous radon monitor. Uh, they started about $200, and you can simply tinker with it. Look at the thing, change the ventilation, go back and look at it and see if it makes a difference. And, and that way you're also going to learn about how the natural stack effect in your home works, how windows and doors change things, how fans change things. So it's a kind of learning experience. This is sort of the nice thing about indoor air quality concerns is you learn a lot about how your house works in unexpected ways. So that can be a real uh, op- door opening to just understanding how your home works. Um, and, you know, we often say to people, don't just get a continuous radar monitor, Get get something which has a whole bunch of different things attached to it. Uh, so there's all sorts of products which will measure CO2, CO, formaldehyde, uh, total VOCs, uh, and, and other things. So so then you're just going to get this awareness of what the indoor environment is and the ways you have control over it.
0: Yeah, definitely. That That's super great advice. I have airwave on my wall right now that measures everything you just mentioned the volatile organic compounds everything when i'm breathing too much in my room from studying up here and not leaving and the co2 is off the charts that's measured so yeah that's that's really great advice uh i i never like doing a uh just a cold cutoff to these interviews i love asking our interviewers what they have on the go if they want to get anything off their chest before before we end So. What, are, are you doing any research with BC Lung? Are, are what are you guys? Are you guys advocating to the government right now? What do you, what do you have on the go that you think would be awesome for our listeners to know? And if you have nothing, that's totally okay too.
1: <laughs> so we we've really been advocating for a provincial plan for radon, and uh, Health Canada has uh, radon action guides for provinces and territories, and for municipalities. Um, and we've really been trying to model that in BC as well. Just the other day, the Fraser Valley Regional District, which which is the, the local government covering much of the eastern Fraser Valley, passed a resolution uh, to take to the Union of BC Municipalities to formally ask the government for mitigation grants and subsidies. And we're also talking directly to the provincial government about about making that happen. So we really hope in the coming years to see a a provincial plan. And, you know, we've always said in our materials, let's solve radon in a generation. Let's take 30 years. Let's get a plan, a 30-year plan to reduce all radon to acceptable levels, to reduce all, you know, elevated radon in the built environment where people are normally spending time within 30 years. So that is actually adding up ways to test all homes and workplaces in that 30-year period and to create the infrastructure for that to happen. So, so we're hoping to get the ball rolling on something like that. Um, and then for our own program, we're, we're really interested in reaching out to talk about Uh, ventilation and filtration in all buildings to protect people from wildfire smoke uh, and to decrease pollutants indoors to give generally people healthier indoor spaces. And that requires the sort of a getting the momentum together for people to say, hey, listen, if I have a right to a healthy indoor environment, I have a right. If I have a right to a healthy environment, I have a right to a healthy indoor environment because that's where I'm spending most of my time. And this is an achievable goal. So We're talking about transforming the building stock in the next 30 years through deep energy retrofits. Uh, An example of that is the Canada Greener Homes program, which is open for renewal. It's going to be changed in the next couple of months. But if we're going to have a mega project of transforming the built environment for climate change, which we absolutely need to do, we can strengthen that initiative by including health and so we should really be looking for a transformed building stock which is healthy for the planet and healthy for humans
0: perfect that's amazing it's 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 so incredible to hear what the bc lung foundation is doing over on the west coast to to help lung health across canada honestly something like that like a provincial code could be implemented obviously it has different effects since you guys are on the coast and there's just different logistic things but Something like that could be implemented province to province, and that would be absolutely incredible. So this has been such a treat, Dr. Quastel. I've always wanted to have a guest on our show to talk about health policy and the law behind it. So thank you for giving up your valuable time today and being on our show.
1: Yeah, thank you. It's a nice experience. And we had always wanted our program to serve as an example for others. So as much as we could talk to people in other provinces to spread
0: the word we want. Awesome. Perfect, Amazing. Well, with that, I'll just send us straight through to our outro. That was such a great episode with Noah. It was amazing to hear a side of lung health that we don't normally get to hear. Usually we're talking about everything science and labs and illness, but this time we got to speak about advocacy and governmental action and law. That's obviously right up my alley, full disclosure, and I'm not even sure if... Noah is okay with me telling this to the world, but I want everyone to know how kind he is. I told Noah that one of the areas I'd like to work in after I graduate law school is health policy, and he was so gracious with his time after the interview giving me advice about how I might be able to enter the industry. I got some great tidbits of advice, and I am super grateful for him giving his time not only to our interview today, but also for taking time for me personally afterwards. Okay, well, let's dive straight into our three concluding thoughts as we always do. First off, I thought that it was so interesting when I asked Noah about his PhD in human geography and what exactly it entails. He said that geographers usually like to say that historians study humans over time, whereas geographers study humans in space. That's an incredible way to think about it. Human geographers think about humans, about how humans are currently impacting the world around them, and how our systems and our society coexist to make our world the place that it is today. Remember, though, that the space Noah was talking about wasn't just physical space. It's the context in which humans live, in which and 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 that involves relationships between nature and the built environment and human systems. So it's really amazing. It just it connects back, and I'm an absolute broken record when I say this, but it connects back to even the bodily system when we say that our lungs are connected to every other piece in our body. How maybe if we're stressed out one day. If our mental health isn't great, that can obviously affect our lung health at the end of the day too. So it's amazing to, to know that Noah actually studies systems and such a mac- at such a macro scale. He studies systems for a living, and that's his PhD, and that's what his academics are focused in. So it's great to know that we have people out there thinking at such a large scale. Secondly, I thought that what Noah told us about energy efficiency upgrades in homes and its effects on radon levels was so knowledgeable. I never really clued in that making homes more airtight and decreasing natural ventilation, therefore unnecessarily heating or cooling the air in our homes, depending on obviously what season we're in, that could lead to more dangerous levels of radon. But it just makes complete sense. when when radon enters our homes through the cracks in our foundations we hope that it has somewhere to go in the summer it might be able to escape through open windows and doors but as we all know it isn't always summer in canada so making homes more energy efficient actually does have some negative aspects now don't get me wrong i'm not advocating for energy inefficient homes that's that's not the case but it's just something to keep our eyes on it's kind of Like that saying, when when you do something positive, something—well, that's not the saying, but I'm thinking uh, kind of like the domino effect. When you do something, something else will happen. When you do something positive, like make homes more energy efficient, something negative happens, and that's exactly the case in response to radon. But having said that, we can completely fix the situation if you have high radon. Test mitigate if your levels are high and then that high efficiency home stays high efficiency and you have mitigated radon in your home so it's just it's a win-win on that front finally it was amazing how noah described the systems that we live in throughout society and the main ways that those systems operate i know that we talked about systems in the first concluding thought but this is a little different so two of those ways that systems operate are the legal system ways in which we are allowed to create our built environment, basically the rules that govern society, um, kind of like the building code that we were talking about. But there's also the taxation or governmental spending, and these often have to do with policy decisions. So it was really interesting when Noah mentioned that the scientific advances that we have, that our society values, these change. Nowadays, we are incredibly health-focused compared to, say, 100 years ago. But being health focused doesn't come easy. It takes advocacy and converting those scientific discoveries, say about radon, into tangible policy action that can help us become healthier individuals. All that is to say is that I really appreciated Noah's take on advocacy and its importance within the healthcare landscape, and obviously. That's what this show intends to be. It intends to be a place where advocacy can happen. Obviously, we're not banging on provincial government doors and and advocating for change on this show, um, which I would like to do one day. I, I hope this. I hope this podcast can can turn into something like that where politicians can listen to it and know what's important to those of us who care about lung health challenges. But. In the meantime, we can use platforms like this and lung health charities across the country will continue to advocate for change even in minuscule ways that will have massive effects. Okay, well, thanks to every single one of our listeners for (laughs) indulging me and learning a bit about health law and policy. Obviously, a few things that I am very passionate about. A massive, massive thank you to Dr. Noah Quastel for giving up his valuable time and being on our show. His insights are so valuable to the lung health knowledge that Canadians can share with everyone they know. If you'd like to learn more about his work, simply check him out online to find papers and articles that he's written about health policy issues, radon and the built environment. Perfect. Well, that will do it for March's episode of the Unsung Lung Podcast. As I always do at the end of every single episode, I'll leave you with our motto, as always, just remember to breathe.